Well, hey, good morning to you, Grace. It's good to see you today. Would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 11, Daniel 11. In Daniel 11, there's almost 200 prophecies in it, so we got to get at it this morning. <laughs> if you're visiting us for the very first time today, I want to welcome you to Grace. So glad that you're here. If you didn't know that you needed a Bible, that's okay. Just use your phone. You probably have a phone with you. Use Google or Safari or whatever you use for web browsing. And just type into there Daniel and the number 11, and you'll be able to follow along with what we are studying uh, today uh, about God's prophecies. The title for today's sermon is Why You Can Trust Daniel's Prophecy. Why You Can Trust These Prophecies to Be 100% True. Now, I'm going to assume that most of us in here have been betrayed by someone that we trusted at some point in time. Maybe it was a, a friend of yours who blabbed all your deepest, darkest secrets to your friend group behind your back. Maybe it was a spouse that when you married them, you trusted them. But now that you've been married to them for a little while, now that you know them a little better, you know you can't trust them. Maybe it was a boss that you had at one point in time. That happened to me. I had a boss in the company that I was working for, and they, uh, they recruited me internally to run a, a group of retail stores, and it meant more work, more responsibility, more commuting, but it also meant more pay. And so I took that to Tanya, and we talked about it for a little bit, and we said, okay, we're in that time in our life where we'll take the extra responsibility and the extra work for more pay. And so we got everything going and started working and the first month and I get my paycheck at the end of that first month and it is a fraction of what they promised me. And I go back and I talk to the boss and about the agreement that we had and I had never heard slimier words <laughs> out of that person than that day. And I worked for the rest of the time in that company in that same job, never getting paid what they promised me. And so it's easy to, to notice when someone else betrays our trust. But you aren't 100% trustworthy either, are you? Are you? Have you ever been late for an appointment just one time? I, I, I know their excuses, the dog, the kids, the shower, the car, the traffic. I get it, but we all have reasons, but we're not 100% trustworthy. I'm sure you've agreed to do something that you didn't completely follow through on uh, just because it wasn't as important to you as it was to somebody else around our house, around the Zickert house. When it comes to the remote control for the TV, nobody can be trusted. Nobody can be trusted. If that TV remote gets lost, my kids are looking for the TV remote. They're like, Dad, you're sitting on the remote. I'm like, I just got home from work. I just sat down and now I'm your remote problem? No. Dad, you're sitting on the remote. So, you know, I'm not sitting on the remote. And I get up and say, I'm not sitting on, oh, see, here it is right here, you know. <laughs> so, no, those things aren't terrible. We understand these things about each other. And so we put up with a certain level of untrustworthiness, even with the people that we trust, right? I mean, we realize that we're all humans. We realize that we aren't going to be on time everywhere all the time. We realize people break their promises sometimes, but we still trust those people. I mean, you have people that you know that they're not going to show up on time to the thing that you schedule. You just know it, okay? Don't be pointing fingers right now at anybody. Okay? You just, you know it. And so what do you do with those? You don't abandon their friendship. You just tell them that whatever it is starts a half an hour earlier than it really does just so that they show up to work on time. That's what you do with a friendship like that. You have some friends who you know that they're not going to come through on everything that they promise you, and you don't abandon their friendship. 
you just send them a text 20 times a day reminding them of the thing that they promised you to do, that they're going to do it, so they remember to do it, you know? And so we have this jaded view, this jaded understanding of the word trust, because we're all humans, and we kind of put up a certain level of untrustworthiness, even with the people that we, we trust. Yeah, I know they say that they're really going to do that, but they're really not going to show up on that time. They're really going to show up on this time, and that's still how we quantify trust. But sometimes we begin to do that with God, too. That same kind of idea happens between us and God. Yeah, I know God says those things. I know God says these things about the rapture, about the, about the tribulation, about the future, about the apocalypse, about the end of the world. And it may not happen exactly like, but I still trust him because that's just, I still trust him. But today I want to show you why you can completely trust the prophecies of Daniel all the way down to the, to the words uh, and to the sentences, and that's why you've turned to Daniel chapter 11. But before we get to that, I want to remind you the purpose of this book. This book was written to a group of Jews at 600 BC who were in slavery to Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire. And so this book was written so that they could see God's sovereign control over all the world's leaders, including Nebuchadnezzar, but over all the future world leaders for all of time, all the way until King Jesus comes, all the way at the other end. That's what this book is about. And so you're in chapter 11, but I hope that you remember that chapter 11 is a part of a longer vision. You remember that from last week? Chapters 10, 11, and 12 is all one vision of prophecy. And this vision in 10, 11, and 12 was brought by Jesus Christ. And last week we saw in chapter 10, verse 14, that Jesus says, I've come to you to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people, meaning Israel, in the latter days, meaning days in front of them. Days that haven't happened yet, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. And as we look at this chapter, find verse 1 of chapter 11, and then find verse 35 of chapter 11. Okay? So, like, put your finger on both of those, and that's hard to do if it's on two separate sides of the page. But chapter 11, verses 1 to 35 is one part of this chapter. This chapter is split up into two parts, and we're going to try to attempt to divide our time between these two parts. Chapters 1 to 35 includes prophecy for Daniel. It was future prophecy for Daniel. But for us, it's history. So verses 1 to 35 was future prophecy for Daniel in 600 B.C., But as we stand here in 2019, it is history for us. And today I'm going to show you why that's important. And then verses 36 to the end of the chapter, verses 36 to 45, is still future for us today. It has not happened yet today. So that's how this book is split up. Let's jump into verse 1 of chapter 11. In verse 1 it says, In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. You remember Darius, he was the king when Daniel was in the lion's den, right? So that kind of puts us in a place and a time that you might remember as we studied the first uh, six chapters of this book. And then it says in in verse 2, it says, And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. 
Remember, this is the Medo-Persian Empire. Darius was a Mede, and uh, Cyrus was the Persian, and they came in and rolled over Babylon. And this is talking about kings in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. And so this verse begins 35 verses that include 135 prophecies. 135 prophecies in those verses that you just held in your fingers between verse 1 and verse 35. 135 things about the future for Daniel that we can look back on and say, oh, I recognize that, as a matter of fact, in this verse alone. In this verse alone, it talks about this, this king that arises, a fourth king that arises even uh, wealthier than all of the other ones. Well, this is referring to Xerxes, King Xerxes. You might remember Xerxes in your history classes when you're going to high school or college or movies, maybe, Xerxes. And then in verse 3, it then talks about a mighty king will arise and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. Well, that's Alexander the Great. 135 prophecies that were still yet to come for Daniel, but now we can look back at them and we can say, oh, look at those. So beginning in verse 1 all the way to verse 35 includes a whole lot of history that we've already seen, and it adds a whole lot of detail to the bones that we've already put together. So you probably remember this timeline from chapter 9 when we studied chapter 9. If you weren't here for chapter 9, you want to know all the detail here, we have a podcast, we have it on our website, we have it on Spotify, it's on Facebook, everywhere. So You might remember this, where Daniel said in chapter 9, there are 70 weeks that are prophesied, 70 seven-year periods. And so we've already been through 69 of those seven-year periods, and we can kind of see it mapped out there. And then we have Jesus Christ dying on the cross. There's a gap in time that is not specifically accounted for in Scripture, meaning we don't know how long that is until the rapture of the church. And then there's the beginning of the tribulation, that final seven-year period. If there are 70 seven-year periods, 69 of them have been accounted for in history already, but one more is still coming. And so verses 1 to 35 cover where the purple covers, okay? 135 prophecies that are at all, meet to all the bones that we've already put together. 135 details regarding this period of time, this 400 years. It's called the intertestamental time. And I know that's a big word for a Sunday morning, all right? The intertestamental time. You familiar with that word at all? I don't know why you would be, but that's in between the two testaments. We have the Old Testament, we have the New Testament, and there's 400 years of silence in between them. They're called the 400 years of silence. And the reason it's called the 400 years of silence is because God did not speak in this 400-year period. Uh, There were no prophets. So we have the end of the Old Testament in Malachi in uh, like the 5th century B.C., And then we have 400 years 
until the next prophet in the New Testament, which would probably be John the Baptist. And there's 400 years of silence. Now, it was not a silent time in history, just God didn't speak during that time. During this 400 years, we see some of the greatest rulers in the entire world. We see some of the strongest nations and the most mighty Uh, military maneuvers that have occurred in our world history happened during this 400 years of time. And that is what verses 1 to 35 include. All of that time in there. So Xerxes, Alexander the Great, Ptolemy, Cleopatra is in these 35 verses and on and on and on and on, 135 prophecies. And we stand here and we look back at that. Now, you do the math, 135 prophecies, we could spend two years Sunday morning, two years of Sunday mornings just studying these 35 verses. We're not gonna do that, we have 20 minutes to go, all right? (laughs) So we're gonna keep going. But this chapter, and as a matter of fact, these verses is so accurate in those 400 years that it is these 35 verses that have caused people throughout history, Christians even throughout history, to believe that the book of Daniel was never written by Daniel. As a matter of fact, most people have believed that Daniel never existed. That this book, instead of being written in 600 BC by Daniel, that there are too many details and too much information uh, about the future that it had to have been written in the first century, sometime after Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, there's a a third century philosopher. This is a picture of him taken with the iPhone 11. (laughs) Parfury, Parfury of Tyre. And he he was an atheist. And he's trying to disprove the writings of Scripture in the, in the third century. So this is like the 200s A.D., okay? 200s A.D. And the way that he intended, and he did, or his purpose was to discredit the writings of Daniel. And the way that he went about discrediting the writings of Daniel was going through these 35 verses that you hold in your hand now. And he looked to see how many of those things actually came true. And Parfury determined that every single one of them came to fruition. And in his mind then, it was absolutely impossible for a guy in 600 AD, BC to write it. It had to have been someone in 100 AD to write it to know about all of the things that occurred during that time. And so, throughout human history for the last 2,000 years, most people even most Christians have believed that Daniel, it's trustworthy, but uh, some of this stuff I'm not quite sure about because it wasn't really written by a guy in 600 BC like it claims to be. I mean, I trust it, but not completely. All the way up until 1947. Now, in 1947, I mean, that's recent. That is recent history. In 1947, some Bedouin shepherd is wandering through uh, this part of Israel and they come across the Qumran Caves. And inside of these caves are 
were um, jars, clay jars, jars that contained manuscripts. These are, they open the, the things and they look inside and these are manuscripts that are from 200 BC. Okay? So they're not the ones that M- Moses wrote, but they are 200 year old, 200 BC year old manuscripts of every single Old Testament book except for Esther. Every single one, every single book, not in totality, not all of the books, but portions of all of those books, all in these jars in those caves. Some shepherd rolls upon it and they take them out and they realize this is Old Testament scripture. And so all of those pieces have all been put together and there's a museum in Israel now called the Shrine of the Bible. I'd love to go there. I, the only way I can experience this is through YouTube and you know Google Earth and stuff like that. But there's a museum, Shrine of the Book. And this, in the center here, this is the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah was found in complete, intact, the entire book. And that's what you see there is the entire book of Isaiah, a 200 BC year old uh, manuscript. Now guess what other book was inside of this cave in these little clay pots? Guess which other one? Daniel's in there. A manuscript of Daniel written 200 BC. No historian argues that that's when it was written. That is before all of those things occurred that Porphyry of Tyre said could not have happened because no one could have ever predicted it. But it was written down before it actually happened. And so ever since 1947, people now believe that Daniel was written when God says it was written because of these writings that were found in the Qumran caves. And so, back to, back to this again. There are two types of prophecy in the Bible. There's fulfilled prophecy, meaning prophecy that was written, for instance, in the book of Daniel in 600 BC. And through, as time progressed, that prophecy was fulfilled. It came true. It happened. And so that's what verses 1 to 35 are. That's what all of that time covered. But there's another kind of prophecy. There's fulfilled prophecy, and then there is unfulfilled prophecy. Meaning there's prophecy that is still yet to come. The Bible contains things, Bible contains things are still yet for the future. When I say unfulfilled prophecy, I don't mean We look back over the 135 in these 35 verses and we realize, oh, well, there were four or five of them that that did not come true. Uh, An atheist, Parfrey of Tyre, already confirmed that all 135 actually came true. I don't need to argue that. What I mean by unfulfilled means time has not occurred yet and yet in the future something will happen. And so verses 36 through 45 is where the, the other part of the prophecy occurs in this book. And this book moves, moves beautifully from, from fulfilled prophecy, 
prophecy that's already been completed and we can look at, and it moves beautifully to unfulfilled prophecy, meaning things that have not happened yet, but they will. And I want to show you that transition from fulfilled to unfulfilled. Look at verse 21 of Daniel chapter 11. In verse 21, it says, in his place, a despicable person will arise. And I want you to see as we read these three verses, if you can figure out who this despicable person is. In his place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. Now, now this despicable person that has this enormous power that makes an alliance and, and goes, against that, goes against that agreement, who do you think that is? That's a safe assumption to think that that's the Antichrist, but this is not the Antichrist. This is Antichus Epiphanes. Antichus Epiphanes of the second century BC, so that's like 175 BC, is a parallel to the future Antichrist. He's an archetype of the future Antichrist. He's a mini-me of the future Antichrist. The things that Antichus Epiphanes did in history will be the same things that the Antichrist will do still yet in the future. And he's placed here in Scripture as a way for us to see how he did it and so that then we can see how it will come true still in the future regarding the, the Antichrist. And so it tells us here in verse 30 the types of things that Antichus Epiphanes, the Antichus Epiphanes, is, I don't know if you remember, several weeks ago, uh, there was a great horn, and that horn was Alexander the Great. And then eventually coming from that was four horns because Alexander the Great was, was killed early. He died early in life. And so out of these four horns, that these four leaders that came from Alexander the Great, one of them grew strong and powerful. And this is referring to Antichus Epiphanes. And so these verses add a lot of detail to who I introduced you to several weeks ago. Now we get a lot more detail about his style. Look at verse 30. In verse 30, this is talking about Antichus Epiphanes, not the Antichrist, although it sounds very similar for a reason. For the ships of Kittim will come against him, and therefore he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the holy covenant and take action. He moves against the covenant of God and he becomes enraged with the nation of Israel. He becomes enraged at the Jews. And verse 31 tells us what he does as a result of his anger towards the Jews. In verse 31, it says, forces from him, Antiochus Epiphanes, will arise desecrate the sanctuary fortress, referring to the temple, and do away with regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. And we can look back in history, in history, history books tell us what happened. 
how he did this. He comes in, he, with his army, takes over the temple. He kills over 100 Jews just in that takeover, and then he does an abomination to the temple, something that is detestable to God. You know what Antichus Epiphanes does? He, he sacrifices on the altar, on the Holy of Holies, a pig. Bacon, all right? You, if you know anything about Jews, Jews don't do bacon. Bacon made the entire place uh, unholy. It, it made it, it, it dirtied the place. It was an abomination. And then he builds a, a statue on top of the altar in the Holy of Holies. A statue of Zeus Olympus goes up on top. And then he goes out and tries to kill every single Jew. That, that's what Antichus Epiphanes did. That was his goal. He didn't kill every single one, but that was his, his goal. And the things that Antichus Epiphanes does is the things that the Antichrist is still going to do. And what happened in Antichus Epiphanes' days is what is going to happen in, in the Antichrist days still yet in the future. Well, um, verse 32 tells us a little bit about what, what happens um, in Antichus Epiphanes' day. Verse 32. Now, some, some people, some of the Jews yielded to Antichrist Epiphanes. We can see that in history. Um, some of them, uh, some of them didn't. They remained faithful to God. It says in verse 32, by smooth words, he will turn to godlessness, those who act wickedly toward the covenant, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. So some of the Jews, they, they just acquiesced and went with, with Antichrist Epiphanes just so they wouldn't get hurt. Most of the Jews, they remained faithful to, to God and most of them were killed for that. But there was a small group led by Judas Maccabeus and Judas Maccabeus, along with a group of people that he started to lead, started to push back Antichrist Epiphanes. You know, Antichrist Epiphanes, the name that he gave himself was Theo Epiphanes, which means God manifested on earth. This dude was so crazy that he thought he was God on earth. Now, most of the people behind his back didn't call him Theo Epiphanes. Most of them called him Epimones, Epimones. And Epimones means madman, crazy man. Okay? He was crazy, but he thought he was God on earth. And so Judas Maccabeus takes a gr small group, okay? but they, they, they are, they're backed by God, and they push him, God manifested on earth. They push him back far enough, they push Antichrist Epiphanes back far enough, where they can reestablish the temple. They purify the temple, and because of Judas Maccabeus and the people that followed him, they pushed him back far enough that where they could begin to have worship back in their temple again. And that day is still celebrated, even today, every single year by the Jews on Hanukkah. That's what Hanukkah is. It's a celebration of looking back to the past, to the, the previous things that were predicted in 600 B.C., happened in 174 to 163 BC, and now we stand back, and Israel, the Jews, still look back on that time and celebrate it as a day when we conquered that and we were able to worship God in our temple again. But all this is past. Everything that we've been talking about is past history. 
And that's what verses 1 to 35 are, is it's past history. The things that Antiochus Epiphanes did is the things that the Antichrist is still going to do. And so now look at verse 36. Verse 36, it moves from that to the Antichrist. Verse 36 begins the future. It begins with the Antichrist. The other 35 verses were all the first 69 weeks, 69 seven-year periods, and now we move to that 70th week as we read verse 36. It says, Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and he'll speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. There is so much to be said about the Antichrist, and there are so many prophecies here in the second part of this chapter that we'd spend another year just studying that. So now we're three years in to this one chapter. Um, I just, I want to point out four, four attributes of the Antichrist as we look at these next few verses. The first one is here in this, in this first verse, um, verse 36. It says the king will do as he pleases and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods and he will prosper. That's the first thing I want you to know about the Antichrist is he will be prosperous. He will be prosperous. He will be the number one celebrity in the world. Um, His cachet will be so attractive to people that the entire world will begin to follow him, not just politically, but they'll begin to follow him religiously. And that's then with that, with that cachet uh, that, that then the world begins to believe that there's no one in the world that could ever bring peace to the Middle East except for this guy. No one could except for this guy. And then he promises that he can do it. And he signs that treaty, that peace treaty that begins the seven-year tribulation. Verse 37 is another aspect of the Antichrist. Verse 37, he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. So that's the next thing that that we know about the Antichrist is that he positions himself as God. He really believes that he is the Messiah on earth. Sound like anybody familiar? Antichrist Epiphanes, God manifested on earth. The Antichrist is the exact same way. He believes, he acts as if he is the Messiah on earth. Verse 38, another aspect of him. But instead, he will honor a God of fortresses. He will be immensely powerful. He, his power is in the military in the armies, Um, but Revelation 13 tells us that his power comes from the dragon, that Satan, that that he not only has militaristic power because he really owns the world at this point in time. This is, remember, this is still yet future, right? Hasn't, Hasn't happened yet, but Not only does he have this militaristic power, he has supernatural power, meaning power that is beyond nature. You know, that thin veil that 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 exists between what is what is natural, what we can see, what we know, and what and then what's right behind it, what we don't quite know and what we don't quite understand. The supernatural. He has supernatural power that comes from Satan. He's powerful. 
And then verse 39. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. And he will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. So the last thing I want you to know about this, about the Antichrist, is that he has plans. This guy has some serious plans. But here's the way he kind of rolls out his plans. It's described in this verse. As he becomes this political, spiritual leader that the entire world begins to follow, the, the way that he pays off people to support him in his candidacy for worldwide leader and worldwide God, the way he pays them off is by giving them areas of leadership that he gives people areas that they will manage. And you remember quite a few weeks ago, the horns and 10 horns. Well, there are 10 men that he puts in supreme power because they were the ones that helped and encouraged and supported him during his candidacy to become the worldwide leader. And ultimately though, he, because he has all this power, he reneges on that original promise of keeping peace in the Middle East and his intent is to destroy primarily the Jews. He wants to kill every single Jew. And one of the very first things he does is he goes to the temple in Jerusalem. This is still in the future. I know it sounds like Antichrist Epiphanes, but this is still in the future. He will go to the temple and he will set up on the altar a giant statue of himself. And he will want the entire world to worship him. Because after all, he's God manifested on earth. Just like Antichus Epiphanes. And he will attempt to kill every single Jew. And that's why it's called the abomination of desolation that, that not only was Jerusalem emptied when Antichus Epiphanes tried to kill the Jews, they all run for their life. I mean, normal people would. It's empty. It's desolate. And the same thing is going to happen in the future when the Antichrist attempts to kill every single Jew, it is completely desolate. He has plans. Speaking of plans, his plans are clarified or at least gives us even a better picture of the militaristic moves that he's gonna make. Verses 40 to 45 are the militaristic moves that he's gonna make. Look at verse 40. We're just gonna read them. We don't have time to look at them in detail, unfortunately. At the end of time, the king of the south will collide with him. This is a collide with the Antichrist. And the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. And he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver over all the precious things of Egypt. I mean, we're talking about the Egypt that we know of right now, okay? So we know Egypt, and it says that he's gonna take control over all the precious metals in Egypt, funding his militaristic power. And the, and the Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch tents in his royal pavilion between the seas and the holy mountain. 
this describes so much prophecy about the plans in which he will enact. Uh, you see Egypt there. Uh, you see many parts of the world and, and scholars have begun to try to figure out who exactly are all of these players in all of these things. People believe that, that Russia is mentioned in here. Um, Syria is mentioned in here. All future prophecies that have not even happened yet. But remember, the title of today's sermon is Why You Can Trust the Prophecies of Daniel. Why can you trust these that we just read from verse 36 all the way to 45? Why can you trust those? Well, the Bible contains two kinds of promises, two kinds of prophecies. Fulfilled prophecies, meaning they were written at some point in time, and throughout human history they have occurred, they have been fulfilled, and now we can look back on them and we can say, yes, I've seen those. In verses 1 to 35, even the, even the, the, the people that don't want to believe in God and don't want to believe in the Bible have, have confirmed all of those are 100% true. I don't know what makes us think that the ones about the future aren't going to be true too. I, I don't even know how that could be. As a matter of fact, Jesus said this exact same thing in just another way. He said this in John 13. He says, I'm, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, meaning I'm telling you something that hasn't happened yet, that's prophecy, right? I'm telling you something that hasn't happened yet so that when it does, when it goes from unfulfilled prophecy to fulfilled prophecy, you can look at that, at that and you could say, whoa, I'm, I'm God, that, that he is God. When he said it and it happened, that's God. And that's exactly what Daniel is setting up here in this situation. That's the purpose of fulfilled prophecy. The purposes of verses 1 to 35 are so that we can be confident that verses 36 to 45 are actually going to happen. That is the purpose of prophecy. The purpose of fulfilled prophecy is to show us that we can, we, because this happened, we can trust what hasn't happened yet. Because the 135 have already occurred, we can be confident that what is still coming will still be exactly word for word as it's described in Scripture. Not kind of maybe, yeah, I still trust, but I can't really imagine how all that would thing would really come true. You know, our jaded view of trust. We can completely trust God's word to the very word. And so we have in this book, in this chapter, the, the past, the, the past prophecies, and as we look at that now, we can say this is going to happen too. Look at the very last sentence of verse 45. The very last sentence of verse 45. Yet he, meaning the Antichrist, yet he will come to an end and no one will help him. Will that happen too? Absolutely, that will happen too. Just as the Antichrist will rise to power, just as he will become uh, dominant in the world, in the future, he will also be taken down by Jesus Christ. That will happen too. All of these things are promises in the Bible. As a matter of fact, one more promise that Jesus made about the future, about the future of things that, that haven't happened yet. This is what Jesus says. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. And let's stop right there just for a minute. Don't be freaked out by all this. Okay? I, 
Don't be freaked out by all the, 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 the future of the apocalypse. Don't, don't get your heart all stirred up and anxious and, oh my goodness, and I don't know what it's going to be like. I can't believe it. This is the recommendation of Jesus Christ. Don't get all stirred up. Don't be troubled. But it says, believe in God, believe also in me. That's referring to Jesus Christ. God the Father is in heaven. And he sent Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to planet earth. And Jesus lived a perfect life when he was here. As a matter of fact, he was on earth when he said these things. And he went to the cross, meaning he died on the cross, but he wasn't dying for anything that he'd done. He'd not done anything wrong, but he was dying for you and for me. The Bible says that we all sin. That sin separates us from God for all of eternity in a place called hell. I mean, just, just doing something that you know you shouldn't do. Just that. That's enough. But God doesn't want anybody to experience the, the atrocities of the tribulation, which are minor compared to the atrocities of hell. And God doesn't want anybody to experience those things. That's why he sends Jesus Christ to, the, to earth. Live a perfect life, never sin one time, goes to the cross, dies on the cross for the sins of the world. Three days later, he rises from the grave, proving that he is God. And right before he leaves, he says this. Right before he goes back up into heaven, this is what he says. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. This is another promise that has not been fulfilled yet. This is unfulfilled prophecy. This is an unfulfilled promise. Half of it's fulfilled that Jesus did go back up into heaven. That has already occurred. But the other half of this is unfulfilled prophecy. Not because it won't be fulfilled, just because the time has not come yet for it to be fulfilled. And in the future, Jesus is going to come halfway back, meaning he's not going to come all the way down to planet earth again. He's going to come halfway back and he's going to take every Christian, person who's put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ, has done exactly what this verse says and just puts your belief in Jesus, that he is the savior, that he washes away sin. He removes the thing that separates you from God. You put your belief in him. When he comes halfway back, he will take you up into heaven. And so you don't experience the atrocities of the tribulation. And you certainly don't experience the atrocities that are even further out into the atrocities of hell. He rescues you from those things, not because you're good, not because you stopped sinning, but because of his grace, because of the perfect sacrifice that Jesus Christ was. So the message here is, is that you don't have to experience the atrocities that are still in the future that are for sure gonna happen, even though you can look back and you can say, oh, I know it's gonna happen because all these things did you don't have to experience them even though they will occur. Jesus will take you to heaven where you experience a place that he's prepared for you. And all you need to do is put your faith and your trust in Jesus. Believe that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross for your sin and that he rose from the grave. I'm gonna give you an opportunity to, to ma make that choice, to believe those things. I'm gonna ask you all, would you be willing to bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? All of you, whether you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ 50 years ago or you've not even done it yet, just creates a little separation between you and the person next to you. And if you know that you 
would not be taken up, that, that, that you would not go. Today's the day where you can change that. You can put your belief, your trust, your faith in this Jesus. And here's, here's what you do. You talk to God about it in the quietness of your own heart. God knows your mind. He, he knows what, what your intentions are. You can't fake God out. You can't lie to him. But if you've changed your mind about who Jesus is, this is what you could say to him in the quietness of your own heart. You could say, dear God, I, I know that, that I've sinned. And I know that separates me from you for all of eternity. But I believe what that pastor says. I believe that, that Jesus is God. I believe that he came to earth. I believe that he lived a perfect life. I believe that he died on the cross, not for his sin. I believe that he died on the cross for mine. I believe three days later he rose from the grave proving that he is God. And so I put my faith and my trust, my wholehearted belief in this Jesus. I put put my life in his hands. I put my eternity into his hands. And with your head still bowed and your eyes still closed, the immediate promise is that God the Holy Spirit, that third person, of the triune God will come and live inside of you, help you live a life honoring to God and will bring that comfort that, that only he can bring. He's the one that helps your heart not be troubled because you've believed in Jesus. It's that Holy Spirit. Well, God, we thank you for all of this. We thank you for revealing the past to us so that we can have trust about the future and we look forward to being in heaven with you. I'm thankful that we can have that hope because of your Bible. In Jesus' name, amen.